Oddly, and there we go. Oddly enough, my contacts aren't working perfectly, so I assume that was a thumbs up because it looked like that from here. Good morning, and welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is November the 13th. I hope you have started thinking about getting your turkeys, if you have turkey for Turkey Day. Uh, you still got time, though. Don't worry. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. We're so glad to have you all here, those joining us in person and those joining us online. Our scripture today comes from Daniel 4, and I will not read the whole story. Feel free to do it. It's in your pew Bible on page 628 and 629. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it down a little, but I'm going to read major sections. I like how this one opens because it's a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar. He wrote, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream. When the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, I told them my dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, David came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called also Belshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the, whole, the holy gods is in him. To paraphrase... He tells him a dream of a great tree filled with fruit and leaves and animals in it and below it. But then a voice cries out from heaven and the tree is cut down and bound with iron. Daniel, also called Balthasar, was greatly perplexed at the time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Balthasar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Balthazar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew so strong and large, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all and giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in the branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness is grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. But you, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop down that tree, destroy it, leave it a stump bound in iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its root remains in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heavens. Let him live like a wild animals until seven times pass for him. 
The interpretation, O king, is that this is a decree of the Most High, has issued against my king and my liege, my lord. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live like a wild animal. You will eat like grass like a cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by um, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them um, gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its root means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge the heaven that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue then. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar then. Twelve months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said to himself, Is it not this great Babylon I have built as royal residence by my mighty power and for my, the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven declared, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and live in the wild. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge the Most High. Immediately, what, happened, what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and nails like the claws of a bird. At that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my, heavens toward, raised my eyes towards the heavens and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion, his kingdom endless from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heavens, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he, will be, he is able to humble. Blessed is the word. Amen. So... As I mentioned before, we are coming to the end of the liturgical year. This Sunday and the next Sunday are the last of the 2022 year, and we will begin 2023 in the end of November. Yeah, it's just the way it works, because Advent is the beginning. And so I thought I would take this Sunday and the next just to talk a little bit about how the Bible wraps up, how the beginning and the end come back together. And so I thought I'd start with Daniel. 
Now, there is a group of literature in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think of, well, either you think, oh man, I'm going to get this wrong. What is it, the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe that has apocalypse in it? I don't remember. I'm not in the comics. But more often than not, you're probably thinking end times and destruction left behind or uh, knowing. That was a scary movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. Not the greatest movie, but it freaked me out for a while. Anyway, what it really means, the word apocalypse means is vision revealed. It is a moment in which a person suddenly has the veil that's before every human's eyes wiped away so they can see something of the universe that normally he, people cannot. It happens to Isaiah when suddenly he finds himself in the throne room of God. It happens to Paul on the road to Damascus where suddenly his eyes are opened and he sees the resurrected Christ before him. There are two books that are primarily these visions. One in the old, Daniel, and one in the new, Revelation. And so today, I thought we'd jump into Daniel just a little bit. Actually, no. I'm not going to jump right into Daniel, as I never jump right into these things. I'm going to jump into something I've talked about before, and I, I beg your apology. I'll give a quick recap for those who aren't as familiar. I'm going to jump into the Divine Comedy. Now, the Divine Comedy was a book written in, uh, I think it's the 1500s, by Dante. And in a nutshell, it's the journey of the author, Dante, traveling through the nine rings of hell, the seven terraces of purgatory, and the nine spheres of heaven. And yes, it is based on a Christian worldview. It is based in Christian theology, but it ultimately is a work of fiction. There are no nine rings of hell, as far as we are aware of. Dante was not trying to describe what the afterlife really was like, but he was trying to reflect the way his Renaissance world was ordered as he struggled with his painful expulsion from Florence, his, pain, his doubts and his struggles in his own faith, and, well, he had a bit of an axe to grind against a lot of people, which is why they all kind of show up in hell. It's a fun story. Yet his work continues to influence how we picture what the afterlife is like, especially the inferno. So much so that it's been shown in quite a number of polls that people believe the imagery that comes from Dante appears in the Bible, which it doesn't. Now, honestly, it's not really a bad thing. We don't know what life looks like on the other side of the veil. So we have to imagine. I myself am a fan of C.S. Lewis's works, and you all know that. I like how he pictures death in the afterlife. Because we just don't know. We don't know what it looks like. Unless we have had an apocalyptic vision. We have those scales wiped away from our eyes, and we saw that which is behind the curtain. For all we know, the spiritual realm, the afterlife, the movements of good and evil in this world, to us normally, are only reflections on a windswept pond, glimpses that are hard to decipher. Now, there are a few people 
some of you who you know personally, who have stepped a little deeper into that pond, who have put one foot in the next world for a time. And when they come back, they don't tell us necessarily what it looked like, but they tell us what it felt like. Because it seems to be something beyond description. So whether you ascribe to Dante's Paradiso, whether you ascribe to Lewis's garden within a garden, or if you think there's a bunch of people hanging out on the clouds, stroking harps, and hanging out in robes with wings, honestly, I don't think it hurts whatever you believe it looks like, as long as it doesn't divide or hurt you in your faith journey. We all like to find a way to describe that which is beyond. Now, the ancient Israelites had their own particular way, and their particular way of the cosmos was in the beginning, God separated the heavens, the sea, earth, and the sea. The sea was a bit of that primordial chaos that continued to exist, though now within the confines of God's control. The earth was the realm of God's creations for animals, for plants, for us, and the heavens were the dwelling place of God. But they, like, well, Dante, like Lewis, like all of us, when we envision what the other world is like, we reflect onto it, and they reflected as well. And they saw God's kingdom as a great palace filled with seraphim, cherubim, angels, and a group of people or beings called the divine council. Collectively, we call these the Elohim. Also a name for God, by the way. They existed as two separate places, earth above, I'm sorry, earth below, heaven above. But they were not purely, they were not fully separate in certain places they touched. There was a space in which it was both earth and heaven. And the first of these we all know, it's Eden. The Garden of Eden, the garden on a hill that crosses that barrier between heaven and earth. A space in which both human and God can dwell. A place that fulfills the promise of earth as it is in heaven. Now into this garden, God brings Adam and Eve. Why does God bring them into that space? Well, they're not meant to be part of the core. You know, in the 1700s, if you were really wealthy and you had a great garden, you would actually have people living in your garden. Hermits, usually, as part of the decor. Sounds like actually a pretty easy job. But anyway, no, that's not why God brought them. God brought them in as rulers. Not equals to God, but near equals. They just had to obey the few rules, and they could do as they wished. They could live eternal, blissful lives in the garden. But we all know what happens. They eat the fruit, so they can decide what is good and evil now, thanks to a serpent's temptation, and God casts them out. Now, this story is central to the Jewish understanding of the world. I mean, after all, uh, Paul is going to bring this story up again and again and again to describe the place of, God, of Jesus in our world. We're going to get to that another time, though. When Adam ate the fruit, uh, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they rejected what God had offered them, this co-rule for human and God together. And they decided that they were going to rule themselves. They would decide what is good. 
they would decide what is wrong. And we have found in the centuries since that when it comes to human rule, we don't do so hot. Whenever human, when humanity came out of the garden, we have ever since attempted to get back in by force. In the beginning, or the first time, it was with a tower. A tower meant to reach from the earth into the heavens, where humans could re-enter into their own Eden. Of course, the Tower of Babel failed. Humanity was spread out, so they would create a new heaven on earth in which little gods would rule over their own territories as kings, often becoming abusive tyrants. Evidently, an extra-large coffee was not enough this morning. We know these men. They existed throughout the story of the Bible, throughout the history as we know it. They decided what was good and evil, and so often that good and evil was not in line with God. This kind of power is too much for humanity. When we have rebelled, when we decide to take that authority into our hands. Pharaoh, of course, is the first of these great tyrants to appear in the biblical narrative. The one who fears the Israelites, who oppresses them unjustly, who kills the sons, who enslaves the people. He would not be the last. Again and again, we find it throughout the Bible. We have the kings of different little kingdoms throughout the time. And then we have the big ones, the kings of Assyria, of Babylon, even of Persia. Of course, today we are, entering, we are talking about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, one nation manages to nearly recreate this garden. They are invited back into it. And that, of course, is Israel. In their founding, there is no king. There's no human ruler who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. Instead, God has handed down the rule book, the Torah, the law, so that the people can co-rule with God. They are given the ability to take God's rules and apply them to everyday living. Now, when the Israelites come into the land, they, they live in kind of this strange, anarchic society. I don't know how to describe it, and I... I realize I'm giving this sermon the week after elections. <laughs> but in this society, each clan looked after themselves and each tribe looked after themselves. And if there was a threat to the whole nation, then the nation came together. But there was no single person, no single group saying, this is how it's to be done. Even the priest who had the most regular power did not have the authority to order other tribes and clans to do anything. If you read carefully through the Torah as they describe the tabernacle, some of it's not there, but we get descriptions elsewhere. Or you hear about the temple. You'll notice that the temple and the tabernacle are not plain. They aren't just bare stone and cloth, but instead they are beautiful. Carved, every inch of them. Carved in vines and fruits with birds and especially of all things, pomegranates. You know, pomegranates. 
The tabernacle was the new Eden. The temple was the new Eden, the garden, the spot in which the divine met the mundane. We are the mundane, by the way. I'm not saying any of you are boring. It's just the word for that which is not divine. Except, of course, for Baba. I see you laughing over there. Anyway. This, of course, is not the last time. Oh, yeah. So, the tabernacle and the temple is where, of course, the, the Ark of the Covenant sits. It's the point of connection where God literally settles on earth, the Ark being the seat upon which God sits. Of course, this is all lost because they get a king. David, he wasn't a bad king. Well, he's a great king. Oh, he's a better king than most. Uh, Solomon, great king at first, not so great king in the end. They end up doing exactly as all people do when they decide that they make the decisions of what is good and what is bad. And sure enough, they cause the kingdom of Israel to fall. That's why we get to Nebuchadnezzar. I know I'm jumping several hundred years, but we all know the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. They range from okay to bad. Full out raspberry bad. So we got to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, a minuscule history on, on, on who he was. Babylon, of course, is first mentioned all the way back with that Tower of Babel as this center where humanity will come together to build their own kingdom, where they will rise up to be equals of God. But then the old Babylonian Empire falls, and a new one rises, the Chaldean Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and the ruler of that is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar who comes and invades Judah. Nebuchadnezzar who destroys the temple. Nebuchadnezzar who builds the greatest, richest, most powerful empire of its day. He is, for all intents and purposes, a God on earth. Whatever he says is done. Whatever he wants is completed. He has built a kingdom out of the Assyrians. He has rebelled and brought them, Assyrians, to their knees. He has destroyed all of his enemies, and he has built an empire like no other. He gets to decide what is good. He gets to decide what is bad. It is his world to rule. How often we are like this in our own lives. We come to think that we are something special. Now this is always a fine line to walk because honestly each one of us is special. But sometimes we think we're a little more special than everyone else. I read to my daughter this book called The Crown on Your Head. I can't remember who wrote this. It's a whole series of books but about how each child is special and unique 
how they each wear their own special crown. But the partway through the book, it says every child has a crown of their own color, their own shape, their own size, but special to them. No one is greater, no one is lesser. That's the way we are made. We are all equal co-rulers, co-created, co-children of God. But sometimes we get into our head that we are greater than another. That what we have done makes us better than others. The nail that sticks up gets the hammer, though. That's the old saying, right? And Nebuchadnezzar stuck up because he was stuck up. All right, wordplay, no, okay. So he got the hammer. He believed that he had done all this, that he had created it all himself. And for those of you who have joined us in our study of Isaiah, you'll remember that over and over again, Isaiah warns, those who think they have done it themselves will end up getting the hammer by God because all things are not ours, all things are his. And so, in his, despite the warning from from Belteshar, from Daniel, he brags that he has done all of this, that he is like a god, and so his humanity is stripped from him. Humans are, according to the creation story, special. We are different than the animals. We are those who the life, the spirit of God has been breathed in too. But all the same, we are still beings of earth, of the mundane. We are those who are very little better than that which we stand on. I'm actually going to wrap this up. It's not a happy ending, but that's because tomorrow or next week is Christ the King Sunday, because there will be one more time in which there is one more time in which the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth will combine. And I'm guessing you all know in whom that happens. Otherwise, we wouldn't all be here, right? But what does this remind us? Because there is good news in this. The good news is that we don't have to make those decisions. We don't have to make those hard rules. We are not kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh. We don't have to decide what is good and evil. We already know that. We already know that God will decide those. We already know our duty in being the co-rulers and being the gardeners of God's great garden. Now, I will do just a slightly more here. As this chapter is the turning point, after this chapter in Daniel, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar will fall underneath his son, who gets the same warning but really does not listen at all and things go far worse for him. And the kingdom falls and Daniel eventually has his own series of visions about what is to come. And in the end, it's a reminder that when we humans decide that we get to take charge, 
things fail. So as you go out this Sunday, remember that God is in control. That God is watching over. That God will make things end out right. And if we try to seize levers of power, if we try to make the world shaped the way we want it and not the way God wants it, we're really no better than the beast that, that Nebuchadnezzar was. Let us listen to that spirit, that God breath that was breathed into us, that makes us different and unique, that makes us children. Next week, we'll talk about Christ. Amen. I know this wasn't the most uplifting end to a sermon. It wasn't meant to be because that's the story of the Bible. We keep falling. Humanity keeps falling again and again and again and again. But there's hope at the end of the tunnel, and that's next week. Christ is coming. Christ is coming to fix all things. The revelation, the revelation reflects the history that has been, the history that is now, and the story that is to come. And so we wait for that which is to come. When all things are made new, when earth and heaven are rebuilt, when once again the sphere of heaven and the sphere of earth connect and combine. But instead of it being just a garden on some hilltop, the day when it will fully combine and the earth will be remade, when God's will in heaven and God is God's will on earth. So, for the meantime, while we wait for that day to come, as we wait for Christ the King, let us rely fully on God, knowing that God is here with us in our hearts, telling us right from wrong. Let us be a bit better than the beast. Amen. <laughs>